I'm super excited to get to be back with you guys tonight and continuing our teaching um, about worship. So hopefully um, you guys learned some things last week, or if you didn't learn some things, um, at least maybe you were refreshed um, on some things and kind of inspired um, in your worship life this last week. And so um, I want to just kind of do a little recap for those who weren't here last week, and also just for us who were, were here to just kind of refresh our memories about what we talked about last week. And so Last week, we answered two questions. The first question was, what is worship? What is worship? And um, remember, this was just not a complete definition by any means, but just kind of giving us a baseline that we could all get on the same page and um, be moving in the right direction. And so we said, number one, worship is not a type of music. Worship is not a type of music. So um, even though worship is actually an expression of our worship, Music in and of itself is not worship. Um, Number two, what is worship is worship is both an attitude and an act. You know, it's not enough for us to just participate in the act of worship, but we also have to check our hearts and make sure that our attitudes are in the right place in order for it to really be worship. Number three, we said that worship is a lifestyle. And I use the definition that worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. And we talked about two ways to live a lifestyle of worship. And and those two ways were to submit to God and his lordship. And then also to honor him um, by choosing to worship not out of religious requirements, but actually out of a heart of love, right? Not just because... The Bible tells us to, but because we want to, we want to worship him. Um, The fourth thing, what is worship, is worship is a sacrifice. You know, worship is going to cost you something. Um, But when we're willing to offer our lives and our desires as a sacrifice of worship to God, it reveals to him where our hearts truly are, right? When we sacrifice and when we are willing to pay that price, it shows God, man, our hearts are with you. We're willing to pay the price. So the second question that we answered was, number two, how do we express our worship? How do we express worship? Um, number one, we said we express our worship through obedience. The scripture tells us that if we love God, we will keep his commands. You know, he wants more than just lip service from us, right? He just doesn't want us to talk about um, how much we love him, but he actually wants us to obey him. He wants a little less talk and a lot more action, right? Um, another th- way that we can express our worship is by using our gifts and our talents. Um, when we use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given us correctly, we're going to bear fruit. Like, it's... That's just the way it is. We're going to bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, that brings glory to God. It makes God smile. And that's a way that we can express our worship by by using our gifts and our talents and our abilities. Um, The third way that we can express our worship is through music and song. And there were several ways that we mentioned that we can express um, our worship through music. Number one, by singing. Um, And we talked about that, you know what, we don't sing because we're good singers, but we sing because he's a good God, right? And it's not about our voices and how good we are, but it's about how good he is. Um, We can also express through instruments and whether you actually play an instrument um, or you actually just use your God-given band. Remember we talked about we have a whole band in our body here, so whether we use our hands and our vocal to clap and our feet to stomp and our vocal cords 
chords to shout and to sing. We can um, express our worship through instruments. Um, Another thing that we do is we raise our hands. We raise our hands as an act of surrender, symbolizing um, the lifting of our lives as a sacrifice of worship. Um, And then lastly, we express our worship by bowing. Why do we bow down in worship? It's because we want to show honor and respect for the authority and the majesty and the lordship of God. Isn't that awesome? We bow because Man, it's it's us humbling ourselves before him and showing him great respect and great honor. And so those are the two questions we asked last week. And this week I want to move on to two more questions. And the two questions I want to answer are, why do we worship? And then what happens when we worship? So let's get started, all right? So number one, why do we worship? Why do we worship? Um, the first reason I want to give you is because God commands it. Because God commands it. In Colossians three sixteen, it says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In Luke 4, 8, it says, Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. In Romans 14, 11, it says, for the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. You see, these are just a few of the many scriptures where God commands us to worship. So why do we worship? Because God commands it. Now, honestly, I could just move right along from this point. God said it, we do it, and then all the rule followers in the house would just march along on their merry little way. But I actually want to try to dive into this point a little deeper because I believe there's a couple different types of people in this room. There's the first person who just, um, you know what, you're the rule follower. You kind of just take everything that's said to you at face value. You're good with it. You move on. But then there's also a different type of person in the room, and those are the thinkers. The thinkers, the the people who want to dig deeper, and they kind of need to understand the whys and the reasons. You ever, you know, some of you have kids in here, and do you ever have, there's, there's a different kind of kid. My, my daughter, Eliana, she is a rule follower. Um, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and, um, because I don't know how I would handle the other. Um, but she's a rule follower. If we tell her to do something, she's not perfect, but for the most part, she's gonna do it. But there's another type of kid, and there's nothing wrong with this type of kid. They're actually really smart kids. Um, when you tell them a rule, it's not necessarily that they don't do what you tell them to do, but they want to know, but why? Like, I'll do, I'll do what you told me to do, but like, why do you want me to do that? Like, they need, their brains need to understand the why, the motive, the reason behind it. So when I get up here and tell you that God commands you to worship, there's a group of you in here You might not say it out loud, but in your mind, you're wondering, but why does God command us to worship him? I mean, 
if we're being honest and just taking things at face value, that can actually come across a little bit egotistical, right? I mean, if any of us just walked around and asked all of our friends and family and loved ones to just worship us and tell us how great we all are all the time, we we would be considered needy, right? And kind of annoying or even disgusting a little bit like those people. But God is not needy. In fact, he is in need of nothing. He's not insecure or an egomaniac. He is God and he is perfect in every single way. So if he doesn't need our worship, then why would he command it? He doesn't need it. He's not needy. So why would he command it? Um, the author, C.S. Lewis, he also struggled with that question when he was, he was figuring things out about Christianity and about praise. And I want to share with you the answer that he discovered on his quest to understand. Because honestly, I just believe it's powerful. And for some of you who might have those similar questions, this might help bring some clarity. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. But I had never noticed how the humblest and most balanced people praised the most, while the crankies and the misfits praised the least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, they also spontaneously encourage us to join in praising it. They say things like, isn't she lovely? Or wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? The psalmist in telling us to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. You see, my whole general difficulty about the praise of God depended on me denying to God, who is the most supreme valuable thing, what we delight to do, what we cannot even help but doing to everything else that we value. You see, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. I love that last statement, and I just want you to really kind of listen and try to let it soak in. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. You see, John Piper said that, what if giving admiration or praise were the highest pleasure? And what if God were the most admirable or praiseworthy? Wouldn't his command for us to praise him be called love and not arrogance? You see, worship is so freeing. Worship is such a selfless and such a self-forgetting pleasure. 
That's why God draws us into this experience. You see, God knows the benefits that come from praising and worshiping him. He understands that praising not merely expresses, but it completes our enjoyment. And he wants to have your joy complete. So he commands you to do what would make you infinitely and eternally happy. To see, to savor, savor, and to say his praises. You see, God is the only being in all the universe that gathering attention for himself is not arrogant, not selfish, abusive, or manipulative, but actually it is love, pure and simple. Everything that God does and asks us to do, he does it because he loves us. You see, he knows what worship and what praise will do for us. And so because of that, he commands us to worship. Isn't that awesome? Man, God is so awesome. So number one, why do we worship? Because he commands it. Number two, why do we worship? Because of our relationship with God. We worship because of our relationship with God. In Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Over, I want you to notice that word, overflow with thankfulness. In Philippians 1, 9 and 11, it says, I pray your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of our salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. We worship out of the overflow of our relationship with God. It overflows in thankfulness and in worship. So if we know that our worship is going to overflow from that relationship, what are some ways that we can grow that relationship? You know, because I want my praise, I I don't want just a little bit of overflow. I, I want it filled to overflowing, right? So what are some ways that we can grow that relationship? Number one, I think we can grow our relationship by realizing who we are. Realizing who we are. I want to read an account of the woman in the Bible who really understood why she worshiped. Um, It's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and 49. And I'll just kind of put it out there in case you haven't already noticed. We're going to read a lot of scripture tonight. You know why? Because if I don't got nothing good to say then at least I know I said something good because the word of God is good. So we're going to read a lot of scripture because I know that scripture will change hearts and change minds. And so if I don't got anything good to say, the word of God can do its job. All right. So Luke chapter seven, verse 36 through 49 says this. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, this woman, she realized who she was. She understood that she was a sinner. And she was very aware of the fact that she needed a savior. And out of that understanding, her worship flowed so freely. With reckless abandon, she came and she gave herself in worship. She didn't care what others thought. She didn't care what it was going to cost her. She was just so thankful to Jesus for saving her and forgiving her. Why did she worship so extravagantly? Because she realized who she was without Jesus. And she was grateful that she did not have to remain that way. You see, I think sometimes we can get caught up in proclaiming who we are in Christ. You know, we're a child of God. We're the head and not the tail. We're above and not below. And although that is true and Honestly, my desire is that all Christians would come to know and understand their identity in Christ. But let me tell you something. We must never forget that all those things, all those good things, they don't come from who we are. They come from who we are in Christ. In Christ. You see, John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing at all. You can do nothing at all apart from him. In Romans 3, 10 and 12, it says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. That, that's who we are, folks. Outside of Christ, that's who we are. You know, Jesus 
said that those who have been forgiven much love much. This woman worshiped because she had been forgiven much. But that kind of brought a question to my mind that he would tell the Pharisee that. Was it that the woman had sinned so much more than the Pharisee? Because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short, right? I mean, there's no, there's no level of sin, right? So what does that mean? We've all have a reason to pour out extravagant love on, on the master. We all have a reason to love him and to worship him because we've all sinned. But what was it that kept the Pharisee from realizing and understanding his need to worship Jesus? I think that it was his pride and his self-righteousness that it had allowed him to forget his need for a savior. He had forgotten. You see, he thought that he could save himself by doing good or checking off all the religious duties. Church, let me encourage you today. Let us not forget who we are without him. Don't be like the Pharisee who instead of throwing himself at the feet of Jesus to thank him for the salvation he brought, instead stood in judgment of another who worshiped so extravagantly. He forgot who he was. Don't forget that if there is anything good or pleasing or holy in you, it comes directly from Jesus. And that is a reason to worship. Isn't that a powerful reason of why we should worship? Is because we realize that without him, without him, there is nothing good. There is nothing pleasing. And that is why we worship. We worship out of our relationship with God and we grow that relationship, number one, by realizing who we are. And then number two, by recognizing what he's done for us. By recognizing what he's done for us. Now, I realize we talked a little bit about what God has done for us just in that last point, but I want us to go beyond the salvation experience and I want us to recognize some other things that God has done. Let's take a look at another woman in the Bible who also offered extravagant worship. And honestly, um, these two accounts um, are very similar, but they're two different people. So try not to get confused. Two different stories and two different women. In John 12, 1 and 8, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, why would Mary have offered such an expensive, such an extravagant sacrifice of worship to the Lord? You know, we understand in the story of the sinful woman that that she did it because she was overtaken by love and thankfulness for the forgiveness of her sins and the salvation that Jesus brought her. But in order to understand Mary's motive, we need to know a little bit more about her story, a little bit more about her experience. You see, she wasn't just any woman. She was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. The same Mary who saw her brother die. The same Mary that knelt at the feet of Jesus and said, if you would have been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. The same Mary that when saw when Jesus spoke a word and rose her brother from the dead. You see, this Mary had seen dead things come to life. She had seen one word spoken by Jesus transform a situation. She had a personal experience of the power of God at work in her life. And because of that, she gave all in worship. Why do we worship? Because we recognize what God has done for us. And we can't help but to worship. We can't help it. You know, um, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated when a new believer comes to Christ and they're, they're really passionate about God and they're all fired up and they're extravagant in their worship and, you know, they're just really intense. And then sometimes what frustrates me is I'll, I'll hear, you know, uh, maybe a believer who's, who's been a Christian for a long time and they'll say things like this, like, oh, oh, just give it time, you know, they'll settle down. Or they'll say like, oh, just wait for a while. They'll learn to harness that newly, newly saved energy, you know. That is exactly the opposite of what should be happening. You see, the saints who have served God the longest should be the ones to praise him the loudest. Why? Because they have years and years of experiences. They have testimony after testimony of how God has been faithful. They know God as the provider in times of need. They have felt the peace as they walk through uncertainty. They have experienced times where there is absolutely no way on earth that a situation should work out, but then God shows up and makes a way. When we recognize what God has done in our lives time and time again, we will not be able to hold back our worship. We will not be able to contain it. It will overflow. Why do we worship God? Out of a relationship with him. We have experienced his faithfulness. And because of that, praise flows freely. The next thing I want to answer is, why do we worship corporately? Why do we worship corporately? And what that basically means is just, why do we, why do we think it's important to come together as a group or as a church and have services and worship together? Why do we worship corporately? In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we come together to express our worship? Why is it important? Because we need each other. We need each other. It says here that we are to stir up one another to love and good works. When you come in on Sunday morning, it is my desire as I am leading worship to stir you up. I, that's what I, I want. I want to stir you up. But you know what? That is not just the job of the worship leader. That is not just the job of the worship team. You know what? You may come in down and dry on a Sunday morning, but if you sit next to the right person who is loving and expressing their pure worship to God, I have to believe that some of that is going to sneak on over to you. You just might get a little stirred up yourself. You just might. Not only is that scriptural, but a really cool thing I learned while studying is that it's actually scientific. It is scientific. Listen to this. Scientists discovered that a lot of primates and all humans are actually soft-wired in their brains with something that are called mirror neurons. It's hard to say. Mirror neurons. And what that means is that our brains can actually experience the same emotion as someone that we're watching if we're tuned into them. So basically, in layman's terms, emotion is contagious. Emotion is contagious. All humans are wired in such a way that I experience your reality by watching you experience it. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been watching a movie and in the movie, they're underwater? And like a few minutes into it, you realize like you're holding your breath. You aren't under the water. You're just watching someone on a screen who is under water. But by watching them, you're actually kind of begin to experience what they're experiencing. You're like holding your breath, like very silly, but it's true, right? Honestly, um, it, not just something like that, but like a lot of times when I watch a movie, I remember this is an old movie, but there was this movie called, uh, I think it's called Never Been Kissed. And Drew Barrymore is in this movie and her name was Julia. And she was like this really nerdy, awkward, just, I mean, like just painfully awkward, nerdy girl. Her name was Julia. And like all the kids called her Julia Gulia. And like they teased her. And like, I mean, it kept the movie, like in the beginning of the movie, they just like kept like showing all these scenes of just like mortifying things that happened to her. You know, like she walks out of the bathroom with the toilet paper stuck to her and like just, I mean, anything that was embarrassing that could happen to someone like is happening to her. And I'll be honest, like I, I seriously wanted to get up and leave the movie, not because it was a bad movie, but because I felt so awkward and embarrassed. I was like, I'm watching her, but I'm like kind of feeling it. It was, it was just this awkward thing. That's mirror neurons. What about when someone smiles at you? 
you typically used to smile back without even thinking about it. That's mirror neurons. So when you come into church feeling defeated, but then the worship team starts singing with freedom and liberty about victory, you begin to feel that and actually experience that reality for yourself. You see, we begin to stir each other up. Some days we're the stirrers, and some days we need to be stirred. But the fact is, we need each other. We need each other. Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Together. That is why we worship corporately. We need each other. We lift each other up. We stir each other up. We encourage each other to worship. This leads us right into our next question. Number two, question number two for 10 points. No, just kidding. Um, what happens when we worship? What happens when we worship? The first thing I want to talk about that happens when we worship is we change. When we worship, we change. You see, worship is about attention. Worship takes our eyes off the busyness of life and it turns it on to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, it says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. You see this passage, it talks about attention. It talks about when we stand unveiled before God, face to face with him in this place where we can praise and we can worship and we can contemplate his glory with our attention fully on him, God transforms us into his image. When we worship, we are changed. The Greek word for transformed in this scripture is actually the same word used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17. The root word is metamorphic, which most of us know the word that we would use for that is metamorphosis. And that is the process that a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. Think about this picture. When we turn our face and turn our attention and our worship towards God, he transforms us to be like Jesus. He transforms us to be like Jesus. Worship changes us. When we get our eyes off of our own situations and our own struggles and we put our attention on God, our perspective shifts. Praise puts our problems in context. Praise puts our problems in context. When we contemplate how big and how great and how awesome our God is, our problems start to look very small in comparison. Very small in comparison. What happens when we worship? We change. We change. Second thing 
that happens when we worship is battles are won. Number two, battles are won. You see, if Satan communicates with the language of lies and praise is the opposite of a lie, then praise can actually be a very useful weapon in taking down the enemy's communication lines. Cut his line of communication and the enemy's strategy will fall to pieces. The enemy's stra- when we praise, the enemy, he talks in lies, praises truth. It confuses him. The Bible gives us an example of how praise wins battles in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Um, in this chapter, King Jehoshaphat of Judah is being threatened by three armies, and the situation basically just seems hopeless. It's like they're, they're everywhere. There's three of them. There's one of us. What's, what's going to happen? But I want you to watch what he does, what King Jehoshaphat does in this situation. The scripture says this, The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That it's, Notice the, the attention, their eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they started out by just praising God, by turning their attention, turning their eyes on God. Why? Because of who he is. Remember that regardless of your situation or your circumstances, God's character never changes. So he is always worthy of praise. Even even in the midst of Jehoshaphat, I mean, like their situation seems hopeless, But they praised God and declared their faith in him. That's how they started out. Good good start, right? Good start. The scripture continues and says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came to Jehaziel as he stood in the assembly. And he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So first they praised and then next, God gives them this word, and he's, he's basically just telling them, you know what? I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry. Just obey me. Just go, go out. Go against the enemy. Don't be afraid. I got this. If we go down to verse 20, it says, Early in the morning, as they set out, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness, as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. Jehoshaphat was a smart guy. He was wise. You know why? Because he knew that the battle was the Lord's, but he also knew that the Lord was enthroned upon the praises of his people. So Jehoshaphat wanted the presence of the Lord to be with him and with his people. So he did something super crazy. Instead of sending out archers and chariots and men with spears, oh no, he sent out the worship team. 
Can you imagine? He put the harps and the drums and the horns right up in front, and then he appointed a vocalist, and he said, go sing songs to that enemy. Go sing them some songs, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy, kind of not what you would expect. But verse 22 and 24 says, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The man of Ammon and Moab rose up against the man of, from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And then after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, all they saw were only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. God went before the army and fought on their behalf. The enemy was so confused because the target Judah was actually like just removed from the picture. And they were so confused that the armies actually resorted to doing what they do best, which is destroying. And instead of destroying Judah, they started destroying each other. And the battle was won before Judah even put their feet on the battlefield. They they started praising and worshiping and then God just fought the battle, right? That's why some people don't understand the the new song that's out. This is how I fight my battles. They never read this story, I guess, right? Because praise, what happens when we worship? What happens when we praise? We begin to win some battles. Praise is like one of those um, intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? It's the missiles that can like shoot from here to like another country all across the world. It, it, It can hit a target without the army even setting foot on the battlefield. If you are in the middle of a battle, I urge you, try praise. Just try it. Try praise. It's one of the greatest weapons in our fight against the enemy. When you're fighting and you need to, you're struggling to win, try praise. So finally tonight, what happens when we worship? Number three, freedom comes. Freedom comes. The Bible gives us a great example with the story of Paul and Silas. In Acts 16, through 26, it says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. When Paul and Silas began to praise God, even in the middle of their awful circumstance, in this horrible situation, they had been beaten, they were in jail, they were in prison. It was awful. There was no real reason in that moment for them to praise. But when they chose praise, 
atmosphere shifted. An earthquake came and their chains were broken off and the prison doors flew open. I think it's important to notice that when the atmosphere shifted, it wasn't just Paul and Silas who were freed. It wasn't just Paul and Silas. Our praise has the power to not only bring us freedom, but to bring freedom to those around us. Now, this isn't a formula thing. You don't get to, if I input X amount of worship, then I'll get X amount of freedom. God's not a genie in a bottle, but he is true to his promises. And when we truly worship him, we will find ourselves abiding in his presence and truth. John 8 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you find yourself in a place of bondage and you are struggling to get free, no matter, no matter what it is, it could be physical, it could be spiritual, it could be emotional, it could be your health. If you're struggling, you're, you're, you're in bondage somehow, struggling to get free. I encourage you, find the truth about God in scripture and then declare it in worship. Find, the scripture is full of the truth of who God is. Find the truth about God. Dig in those scriptures and find the truth about God and then declare it in worship and watch God show up and bring you freedom. He will bring you freedom. What happens when we worship? Number one, we're changed. We are changed. We're transformed to be like him. Number two, battles are won. It's not just a song. It really is how we fight our battles. It's how battles are won. And number three, when we worship, freedom comes. I hope you guys have learned um, some new things or maybe even just been reminded about what an incredible privilege it is that we have to worship the Lord. I hope that maybe you were reminded or even taught that there are so many powerful byproducts that come when we worship the Lord. It, it's incredible. It's, an, it's amazing. It's not just 20 minutes on Sunday morning. It's an experience that changes us. But let's not just get all filled up with all this cool knowledge about worship, all these fun facts, details. Oh, I can tell you now what is worship, how to worship, why we worship. You know, like, let's not just, let's not just get it all up in our heads. But let's begin to exercise and apply this knowledge in our life. Let's begin to live that lifestyle of worship.